Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, intergalactic bounty hunter. Yeah, you are. So uh, we are here to launch our fifth season of awesome movie year. Hooray! Thanks for all the support, everyone. Yeah, thank you. It's amazing. We've made it to five seasons, and we're very proud of ourselves, and we appreciate all the support. And in this season, we are talking about the films of 1977, uh, which was initially our plan for the fourth season. We kind of made a little swerve. We went back to the 90s and talked about 1996, but I'm excited to get back into 1977, and this is the furthest back we've yet gone in film history, but it is a landmark year, and one of the reasons it is a landmark year for cinema is because it sort of represents the dawn of the blockbuster, and that is because of the movie that we're talking about in this episode, the number one movie at the box office in 1977, it's Star Wars, which you may have heard of. I have not. No, well, that's good. This is going to be a great episode. Um, I want to introduce Jason to the concept of Star Wars. Yeah, I actually think uh, the blockbuster, modern blockbuster started in 75 with Jaws, which is another great, awesome movie year, something to discuss. But Josh, 77 uh, has a lot going for it. Obviously, Star Wars took it to the next level. And you were the one who really pushed for us to do 1977. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right about Jaws. That was certainly the beginnings of the blockbuster era. I think Star Wars took it to a whole other level with the amount of success that it had. And and a lot of the kind of things that happened with Star Wars, things like people waiting in line to see the movie and the idea of a wide release, which this this movie didn't get, but the eventual concept of that and just the, the sheer sort of apparatus around it with merchandise and with potential spinoffs and all that kind of stuff. And and 77 is, a, as we'll see throughout the season, is an awesome movie year for other reasons and a lot of variety in terms of what we're going to talk about and what was released. But the 70s in general are often considered a high point for American cinema, in part thanks to people that George Lucas kind of came up with. Um, as a young filmmaker, people that we may or may not uh, talk about <laughs> later in this season. Um, but George Lucas took a different route. Uh, the 70s are often uh, well known because of the kind of gritty, independent, realist cinema that was embraced by large audiences in that uh, time period. And that is not what this movie is at all. It's not? I really misinterpreted this film, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I uh, I don't think anyone, I don't think it's possible that anyone listening to this or in existence is unfamiliar with Star Wars. So <laughs> I think I think you're right. And like you said, this was like the film school brats uh, of the uh, late 60s, early 70s, which was Lucas, Coppola, Spielberg, uh, De Palma, and Scorsese are usually considered the big five in that group, right? So, yeah. um, and Scorsese was on the East Coast. All these other guys were chilling together on the West Coast. But you're right in that, um, you know, they all kind of found their own voices. Obviously, Spielberg and and Lucas uh, drifted more towards this uh, fantasy and 
kind of family genre, and Star Wars is a space opera, Josh. So that's yeah. a re- that's a real throwback to like the 30s and 40s and stuff. That it is, yes. It's certainly not uh, the kind of thing that some of those other filmmakers were working on, but it is in in a way in the spirit of that because it's a very personal thing for George Lucas. It's something that meant a lot to him and that he put his career on the line to make this movie that he wanted to make in the way that he wanted to make it. And that's very much in the spirit of what filmmakers were doing in the 1970s. And of course, it super paid off for him immediately. And this isn't a movie that became a cultural phenomenon like over a long period of time. This is a movie that was a massive success immediately. In its initial release, it grossed $410 million worldwide, and it became the highest grossing movie of all time at the time. It was eventually toppled by Steven Spielberg with E.T. in 1983, uh, over time, it has been re-released many times in many formats. Uh, it briefly returned to the top of the list of the all-time highest-grossing movies in 1997 when the special edition uh, came out in theaters, which uh, I believe you and I went to see in a theater together in yeah, 1997. Yeah, one of the casinos, I remember. So Yes. Um, so yeah, right now with inflation, it's the fourth highest-grossing film ever, so... Uh, still doing pretty well there, Josh. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's. Um. Yeah, accounting for inflation, it depends on which chart. I looked at it one, and those are not. Uh, completely like there's different ways to calculate it. I think I looked at one that actually had it at number two, still adjusted for inflation behind Gone with the Wind, not adjusted for inflation. It still ranks pretty well. It's number nineteen. Uh, of all time in North America, number 99 of all time worldwide. And that's just in sheer numbers, which of course keep increasing. And the tops of those lists are now always like more recent releases. In fact, depending on which list you look at domestic or worldwide, there are either five or six other Star Wars movies uh, that rank above it. And uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens is currently still the number one movie of all time in uh, North America, not worldwide. So but, spoiler alert, there were further installments of this there were, Yes, <laughs> We're really like, if, if you've come into this not knowing about Star Wars, you're, you're really going to have the whole thing ruined for you. One of the things that I, I don't know if I would say I was surprised by, but maybe I, I kind of forgot about and was sort of interesting to me that is in addition to it's obvious huge box office success, which uh, I think everyone knows about. And it was a critical success. But not only that, but it was nominated for 10 Oscars, which I think because these days when Star Wars movies come out, we don't expect them to be nominated for major awards. Maybe they get nominated for technical awards. But this movie was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Director. It was nominated for uh, George Lucas's screenplay. It was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Alec Guinness. And it did eventually win six of those Oscars, which were more along the technical lines, including for the visual effects, the costume design, the editing, as well as John Williams' score, which, of course, is one of the most iconic pieces of movie music of all time. Um, as, and it also won a special Oscar, a non-competitive Oscar for Ben Burt, who created the sound effects in this movie and is just like a, an amazing pioneer of, of sound in cinema. And really, I think, deserves as much credit as some, some of the bigger names in this movie for his contributions. 
So there are other awards. I mean, obviously, we could spend the entire podcast just talking about the accolades for Star Wars. But uh, what an interesting show that would be. Well, hey, people would probably listen to it. There's a there's a whole podcast that that's that spends each episode talking about one minute of this movie. So uh, there's a lot of wow. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The what Star is that Wars called? Movie. It's called Star Wars Minute. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I I want to agree with you on a few things. Uh, I think you Please. made a really good point about even though this is like this sci-fi uh, epic, this is a very personal story to George Lucas. And, you know, whatever you feel about it, the amount of work he put in getting this made, scripting it, getting the look right, like it's incredible. And obviously the Joseph Campbell, the research on, you know, kind of the, the myth of the mask and all that stuff and all these kind of mythologies throughout time, like really impressive. And um, the other thing that you mentioned was, yeah, this may have set the precedent for all these kind of like big epic uh, kind of fantasy films to get the technical merit that they uh, or achievements that they deserve. Like we saw Lord of the Rings, you know, and everything when all these Oscars like you're right. Every um, technical aspect of this is pretty incredible. So it's kind of fun looking back. Uh, I've been watching that uh, Empire the documentary on um, the making of the first three in preparation for this. Oh, the Empire cool. story, I think it's called. And um, it's really interesting to see all the things that went right, all the things that went wrong and how they pulled it all together for about $11 million. Right. And we think of Star Wars now, of course, as this massive like corporate behemoth. But of course, that's not what this was at the time. And Lucas had to fight for every bit of the budget that he needed. And there were uh, compromises and and conflicts and all the kinds of things that you would have on a, a relatively small scale production at the time or, or even now. But Lucas was really this driving force that kept that going. He had a clear vision that he wanted to execute and he made sure that it happened. And obviously it, it paid off and it was something that even despite the initial skepticism and there were a lot of people who looked at this project and thought this is a ridiculous idea and this is going to be a failure. And he knew exactly what he wanted to do and he stuck with it. And those people obviously turned out to be wrong, including some of the people who worked on the movie itself. So I think it's, it's interesting to, to be able to step back from what we think of star Wars now and realize that it actually had a lot in common with those smaller passion projects that, we think of as as a major part of 1970s cinema. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, two of the big names that should be mentioned as believers in the movie would be Alec Guinness, who worked out some awesome deal for himself as like getting 2.25% on like one fifth of the gross royalties because he did think it was going to be a big deal. And, you know, obviously uh, the lore probably starts with that Obi-Wan Kenobi there. And then, uh, Alan Ladd Jr., who ran the studio, you know, like even in this uh, documentary, he's like, yeah, I didn't really understand it, but I believe in George Lucas. So I gave him the money to go do it. And uh, it was good. <laughs> yeah, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, uh, I thought it was it. I saw this on on Wikipedia that Steven Spielberg, who, of course, was a friend of George Lucas's and a classmate, also believed in it to the point where he traded two and a half percent of his participation in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which Lucas was uh, confident would be more successful. And he traded that to Lucas for two and a half percent of the uh, profit participation in Star Wars, which Steven Spielberg still gets. 
for having done absolutely nothing. So yeah, he's like Sting on uh, the Dire Straits "Money for Nothing" song. You play that riff, you sing that riff, you know, you get that money. But yeah, those those guys, as we know, compadres and Indiana Jones and all the stuff they've done together. So. I think they're both probably like, yeah, that's fine. It worked out well. Yeah, no, it's not as if Spielberg didn't have his own successes, including Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was a very popular movie, just not on the level of Star Wars. And from 1977. Indeed it was. So uh, also critics generally uh, were positive about this film. Uh, and it's it's always fun to look back at the reviews of the of a movie that became such a phenomenon where people are initially reacting to it and they don't quite have all the information of how it would go. Um, so especially one we'll get to in a minute. But first off, uh, Roger, Roger Ebert said, the movie relies on the strength of pure narrative in the most basic storytelling form known to man, the journey. All of the best tales we remember from our childhoods had to do with heroes setting out to travel down roads filled with danger and hoping to find treasure or heroism at the journey's end. In Star Wars, George Lucas takes this simple and powerful framework into outer space, and that is an inspired thing to do, because we no longer have maps on Earth that warn, here there be dragons. We can't fall off the edge of the map, as Columbus could, and we can't hope to find new continents of prehistoric monsters or lost tribes ruled by immortal goddesses. Not on Earth, anyway, but anything is possible in space, and Lucas goes right ahead and shows us very nearly everything. We get involved quickly because the characters in Star Wars are so strongly and simply drawn and have so many small foibles and large, futile hopes for us to identify with. And, of course, the use of archetypes, and as you mentioned, the Joseph Campbell uh, hero's journey story is something that people have mentioned over and over again about Star Wars. But certainly, it's one of the things that gives it that broad appeal, that makes it something that kids can like and adults can like, that people from all different cultures around the world can identify with and can get immersed in because it's essentially a fairy tale. And George Lucas knew how to make that work. Right. Recognizable tropes and archetypes. And like we said, Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces, who Joseph Campbell was actually consulted on this film. And Lucas was constantly asking, like, am I getting close. Am I doing this right? You know, so I always remember when I was studying film back in the day when I uh, cared about life, guys. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, you would always hear Joseph Campbell and then the searchers, you know, a Western, a wide open Western where you're going on a rescue mission. Those were the the two that uh, often got compared to Star Wars. I uh, also one thing about this Ebert review, some of our listeners might not have heard it, but I feel like this Ebert space review is better than his space review of Space Jam, which we mentioned in our <laughs> bonus episode, which he also gave a positive review to for some reason. Yes, he did. Space Jam and Star Wars, two equivalent cultural phenomenons, <laughs> certainly. Sign up for our Patreon and hear the episode about Space Jam. Um, so this this is uh, talking about the the sort of uh, lack of foresight, or really we can't blame people for not knowing what would happen beyond their time period. But I, I, I thought this review, uh, this is A.D. Murphy in Variety, uh, has some interesting uh, misconceptions about what Star Wars would become, maybe. Um, <clears throat> he says, like a breath of fresh air, Star Wars sweeps away the cynicism that has in recent years obscured the concepts of valor, dedication, and honor. Make no mistake, this is by no means a children's film with all the derogatory overtones that go with that description. 
This is instead a superior examination of what only the screen can achieve. And closer to home, it is another affirmation of what only Hollywood can put on a screen. The heroes and the heavies joust through an exciting series of confrontations, replete with laser guns and other futuristic equipment, building suspense toward the climactic destruction of Cushing's warmongering planet. Several chase and escape sequences are likely to stimulate spontaneous audience applause. (laughs) to put it mildly. And he, of course, is referring there to Peter Cushing, who plays Grand Moff Tarkin, who he, throughout this entire review, labels as the primary villain of this movie. And uh, at one point, he refers to Darth Vader as one of Cushing's key aides. So, <laughs> I, I mean, and, and watching this movie without any knowledge of what else would happen or or the larger context that these characters would end up in, I guess you could see that with Grand Marf uh, Tarkin there. And Peter Cushing, of course, who was a famous, well-known actor at the time versus uh, a guy in a suit and James Earl Jones, who was not particularly well-known. I can see how you would construe him as the main villain of the movie and is, of course, the one who is defeated at the end, whereas Darth Vader gets away to fight another day. Um, but it's just it's amusing to to see that as the the way that it was interpreted. Yeah, I think that's a fair interpretation, though, as well. I mean, he is the boss man on the uh, Death Star there. So, you know, I'm not exactly sure what uh, his relationship with Vader was. It just seemed like they're both like co bad guy heads, maybe or something like that. So. Right. And it seems like because at one point, uh, Princess Leia, played by Carrie Fisher, in case you're not aware, um, Talks about Tarkin as a member of of the Senate. He's like an official politician. And Darth Vader seems like he's sort of a a guy behind the scenes pulling the strings. He's a fixer. He's a fixer. Exactly. He really is. He's he's the emperor's kind of like uh, unofficial henchman in a way. Uh, And of course, the emperor who would become a major, major figure in the Star Wars series is not seen, is only referred to in this movie. Um, so I could see how you could imagine that. On the other hand, just from a visual standpoint, like bland looking guy in a uniform versus Darth Vader, like who do you think <laughs> is the main villain of the movie? Sure. But let me defend that point of view for a second, right? Because there is that scene where um, Vader says he feels like a interruption in the force or something, that meaning, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi's there. And one of the other politicians on the ship or dignitaries says like, oh, you and this force, this old timey magic, blah, blah, blah. And Vader like chokes him with the force to show the power of it. Right. Yeah. And the dark side. And uh, and it is Grand Moff who's like, hey, put him down. And Vader's like, OK, I'll put him down because you told me to. So right. maybe he does seem like the boss. Yeah, no, that's true. And Vader maybe in this movie comes off more like the the henchman who's like a loose cannon. You know, the guy that the boss brings in and says, oh, I can't control him. He might kill you at any time. And that guy is not necessarily the the main villain of a piece. So I don't I, I'm, I'm not blaming this reviewer for interpreting in that way. I, I just do, I do think it's amusing to see it uh, in the context of ha- knowing what would come later. So not everyone loved it. And uh, Pauline Kael, who uh, is not surprisingly skeptical about something like this, uh, in The New Yorker, she said, the loudness, the smash and grab editing, the relentless pacing drive every idea from your head. For young audiences, Star Wars is like getting a box of Cracker Jacks, which is all prizes. 
This is the writer-director George Lucas's own film, subject to no business interference. Yet it's a film that's totally uninterested in anything that doesn't connect with the mass audience. There's no breather in the picture, no lyricism. The only attempt at beauty is in the double sunset. It's enjoyable on its own terms, but it's exhausting too, like taking a pack of kids to the circus. An hour into it, children say that they're ready to see it all over again. That's because it's an assemblage of spare parts. It has no emotional grip. Star Wars may be the only movie in which the first time around the surprises are reassuring. Going a second time would be like trying to read Catch-22 twice. Even if you've been entertained, you may feel cheated of some dimension. A sense of wonder, perhaps. It's an epic without a dream. So, not entirely negative, but you can... She, she seems to be put off by the, the, the blatant commercialism of it. Um, but I would say that blatant commercialism is part of like George Lucas's personal dream. So in a way that is just as personal as anything else. Well, a few things there. One, I thought it's interesting how she kind of hammered home the point, like the kids will love it. The kid, this is for the kids. And then the last review you read was like, this isn't a children's movie at all, you know? So, um, and also looking back, I mean, um, I would say that the blatant commercialism, uh, grew out of this in a lot of ways like this helped build that blatant commercialism you know the last thing i would say that i disagree with her is there's some really nice shots in there there is some beauty in there yeah no i agree with you on that and as far as the commercialism like yes obviously so much of it grew out of the success of this movie and and was and fueled the later movies but i think the idea of making a movie that would appeal to the widest audience possible and that would have this as we were mentioning earlier this this simple sort of fairy tale structure to it and that would reach the widest possible audience was something that George Lucas cared about a great deal that that was the kind of movie that he wanted to make that he wanted to evoke that feeling that he had had maybe watching old Flash Gordon serials which again was something that initially back in the beginning he was trying to make a Flash Gordon movie and couldn't get the rights to it and that was part of what inspired him to create his own thing, but he's drawing on his own experiences, his childhood, trying to recreate something that was very commercial. And so I think to call it uh, crowd-pleasing is not an insult, I think, as far as George Lucas is concerned. That's a compliment. That's what he was going for. And it is kind of interesting if you look at his two films before this, THX 1138, which is more exper- experimental, like kind of sci-fi fair, as yeah. opposed to American Graffiti, which is popcorn kids, rock and roll. Um, it's got some sad stuff in there towards the end, but it is really a feel good, you know, kind of sock hop style movie, you know, about kids cruising the the avenues. So it's almost a combination of uh, taking the sci-fi element of the first one and the feel good elements elements of the second one. I mean, like, oh, this second one was a much bigger hit. What if I did that to the first one now, you know? So you can definitely see those influences. Yeah, I think so. Um, And it it is sort of like a combination of those um, that is certainly part of the influence that he was taking in here. So as as we mentioned, we, uh, you and I, saw this in 1997 in the in a theater and the special edition. Do you remember the first time you ever saw Star Wars? 
Uh, I think I was probably about six and I did the trilogy all at once or very soon, you know, very early on. And, uh, you know, at the age of six, you like Ewoks, right? So, sure. but I, and I didn't, I wasn't like a huge fan as a teenager. I mean, I, like I said, I think my dad and I probably watched him when I was a young kid and then hadn't watched him for a while until those re-releases. And it was cool seeing him on the big screen. Yeah, I remember that being exciting and fun going to see all those special editions and that was all when we were when we were teenagers that came out in in succession uh maybe one every year uh or something like Wasn't that. Wasn't it like every month that they came out? Oh, maybe it was some more like that because I know it was it was in the lead up to the premiere of the the Phantom Menace and the launch of the prequel trilogy. Yeah. Um, but but whatever it was, I remember going, we were in high school and I remember going to see each one and it was an exciting experience. And I had watched it. I, I was trying to think of this. This is one of those things that I can't remember specific viewings of Star Wars. Like when I was a kid, when did I first see it? Or do I remember having like a sleepover and watching it or something like that? It feels like it's something that was just always there. You know, I had always seen it. I was always aware of it. And by the time we went to see it in the theater in those special editions, I'm sure I had already seen it at home multiple times. I know we had like the VHS uh, set of the trilogy at my house. But as for when I first saw it or when I specifically saw it when I was six, eight, 10, 12, whatever, I don't remember. It's just it's always been there. Well, yeah. Also, you know, for for those that don't know uh josh and mark hamill's son are are were friends growing up and are still friends i'd say right so yeah yeah nathan hamill uh shout out to nathan um we uh went to school together in uh third through fifth or sixth grade i think and we were good good friends and so i'm sure i watched this with nathan i mean he certainly it and you, you know, this isn't always the case uh, with, with kids of, uh, of famous people, but he was always a big fan of his dad's work and of Star Wars. And that was also something that was around, I'm sure, you know, going to Nathan's house, there was Star Wars stuff everywhere. And we probably watched it at his house uh, or watched it together at my house or something. But again, it, I think it just kind of adds to that sense of it just always being a part of my life without having the specific memory of which time I watched it. Yeah. My, one of my best friends growing up was Eric Greenup and he was like, uh, he got the Nintendo power pad before most of us, but like, I feel like you won this one. <laughs> yeah. Nathan's a good guy. And, uh, we are still, uh, you know, we're still friends and he does, uh, his own, he's, uh, done a lot of cool star Wars, uh, like fan art, uh, things, toys and, uh, t-shirts and prints and all of that stuff. So, and has had cameos in a couple of the, I think in one of the prequel movies and in one of the sequel movies, he got to play like a background character. So Well, that's more than Eric Greenup did. With, with yeah, or, or, or you or I did. So, hey, uh, but Dave, what about Dave? Dave, our producer. Hey, Dave. Hey, guys. Okay. Have, uh, have you seen Star Wars, Dave? Are you <laughs> have you ever heard of it? Star, the Star Wars? Uh, I, I've heard of a movie called uh, A New Hope, but yeah. Star Wars, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I, I was never a big Star Wars uh, guy myself. I kind of have the similar thing where it's like I, it was always around. I'm sure I saw it a few times. But I remember when the the, the uh, re-releases came out, it almost felt like it was the first time I had seen them. Like I it was that thing that I always say nowadays where I'm like, I know I saw it, but I don't remember it. That's how I felt in 97 or whenever that was when that happened. I, I knew I had seen all the Star Wars movies, but 
it was like, I guess I was even younger. Yeah, but that's a fun way to experience it. Cause I, I mean, we're all kind of jumping around that same idea. Like we all knew it, but hadn't really like focused in perhaps on it. And then, so yeah. in a way, like we did get that big screen experience. Not that, you know, we didn't have the 1977 original, but I remember Josh, when we went to see it in 97, you know, people are dressed up, people are waiting in line, people are clapping at things that I'm not clapping at, you know, it's all like, <laughs> and, and of course we've seen that throughout, um, all the many, 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 many installments since. Yeah. But I, I agree that that experience in 97 did feel fresh and new and exciting. And, and, you know, partly because it was the quote special edition and there had been changes and additions made that people were curious about. But it did feel in some ways like experiencing it for the first time or experiencing it the, the sort of the proper way for the first time. And I think if I had been indifferent to Star Wars as a kid, maybe not indifferent to it, but it was just, again, it was just there. I wasn't like super passionate about it. I think seeing uh, those versions on the big screen probably made me more excited about the existence of Star Wars and what was yet to come and that was some misguided excitement, but uh, well, to, we'll sum, to, that to sum up, Star Wars is greater than Nintendo Power Pad. So true. I don't even remember. Was that like a that uh, like a, a mat that yeah. you stood on? Yeah, you ran on it. And anyway, let's go to the next segment of the show. <laughs> All right, we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Star Wars. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In the first episode of our season on the films of 1977, we're talking about a little space adventure thing called Star Wars, which of course was the highest grossing movie of 1977 and of all time, briefly, for, for different periods. And it's, you know, fairly well known within, within the culture. So, uh, I mean, and, and because of that, it's a little tough to kind of bring a new perspective to Star Wars. So we'll do our best yeah. at that. But I don't know that we're going to be able to have any insights that people have not had before. But uh, broadly speaking, Jason, do you like this movie? It's all right. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. <laughs> uh, I like it. I appreciate it more than I like it. Um, I'll say this. I, I kind of disagree. You brought up that Pauline Kale thing. Or she's like, there isn't a moment to breathe. And I'm like, man, I breathed through the whole first hour, dude. So <laughs> it it feels like two different hours, right? The first hour of them, you know, kind of getting to the Death Star. And then once they're on the Death Star, things really pick up. But, you know, the first I was like for the first 20 minutes, I'm like, are, uh, if I hadn't seen this movie before, I'd be like, oh, the main characters are these two droids, C-3PO and, and R2-D2. And they get lost in a desert and. Uh, and yeah, so it's fine. But I mean, look, I don't dislike it. Uh, everybody knows that uh, there are better installments. So we'll get to that. I'm sure it's fine, Josh. Yeah, I, I mostly agree with you. And the last time I had seen this movie, the most recent time before this was in 2015 before The Force Awakens came out. And at the time, I noted that I thought it was fine. Like you said, it's it's something to admire. I mean, it 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 launched such a change in the world of cinema and this this huge pop culture phenomenon and so many careers and all of that. You can't not admire it. Um, but I think I didn't enjoy it as much. I enjoyed it maybe a little more this time, 
Maybe because I actually went in with slightly lower expectations thinking, oh, I'm not really that into this movie and I had fun with it. And and what you're talking about there, the, the kind of slowness of the plot, I actually appreciated that this time. I think we're so used to the idea because these movies get bigger and bigger and bigger as time has gone on. And we're used to this, like the most recent movie, The Rise of Skywalker is just like nonstop set pieces. That has what Pauline Kael is describing, which is no moments to breathe, I think. And there were no, there was no template for this at the, at this point. And so the idea of kind of building up to the reveal of how big this world is and how wide the scope is, I think is nice. And I, I agree with you that, that watching the beginning of the movie and Luke Skywalker doesn't come in until like 15 minutes into the movie and Han Solo doesn't come in until, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 minutes into the movie you really get the sense that, that C-3PO and R2-D2 are almost the main characters. And I, I like that. I like that that's, I want to see that movie where they're the main characters. Yeah, but then that doesn't happen. And it that's what I mean. It's very scattered for the first hour, right? Yeah. The second hour is very easy to follow. Rescue princess, get away, blow up Death Star. You know what I mean? But the first hour is very all over the place. Yeah, Luke Skywalker doesn't seem like a hero of any type, you know? And also, dude, is there a more underwhelming introduction to a major uh, protagonist than Obi-Wan Kenobi? Like, he just shows up in the desert and they're like, hey, hey. You know, like, he doesn't fight anyone off like they would nowadays or do anything cool. He's just like, hey, it's me, Ben. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah Ben's here. Hey, guys, Ben is here. <laughs> I, I kind of like that. Again, I feel like we have these expectations now for how that stuff goes, not only in a Star Wars movie, but in any big franchise action blockbuster movie. And those expectations, uh, those formulas didn't really exist. Lord, George Lucas invented so many of those formulas. And so I like that it's understated. Like he doesn't have to come in wielding his lightsaber and kill 10 dangerous aliens to be introduced. It's like, he just hangs out in a cave. That's his thing. And Luke kind of stumbles on him. And Luke, too, is introduced as this kind of whiny, uh, entitled, young, I guess he's a teenager of some kind. Like, they're just weird misfits on this random planet. And we don't know that they're going to become these important galactic figures in this epic story. And and so I, I found that sort of endearing in this movie. And yeah, it's it, it could be more exciting, certainly. Um, although I think part of the excitement is also, if you're not familiar with it, is discovering this world. And even if it's a little slow or it's a little subdued, you still have the Jawas, you know, the weird little aliens, and you've got droids and you've got spaceships and you've got all this stuff that's, that's completely new that you're re being revealed for the first time. Yeah. I, maybe I've just been tainted by so many of the future, you know, editions of it where like people are coming in and, you know, it's like, hey, I'm going to blow up this guy's ship. And now, you know, who I am as a character. Right. You know, but I don't know. But, you know, like like you said, nominated for best screenplay, like, you know, I expect a little more out of the first hour if you're going to be nominated for the for the best screenplay. So I'm, I'm not going to go back on it. This is like the opposite episode where Josh Bell does not hate everything. And I'm the one who's <laughs> blasting a beloved thing. But uh, no, I mean, I like the second hour much better than the first. Although I really do like the the stark desert landscape of the first, you know, hour. But um, 
No, I just, it was, it was like, all right, man, you're kind of just all over the place. Like I said, I think more so than the slowness, I think Jason hit it on the scatteredness of yeah, how execution that, that, of it. yeah, yeah, it's just all over the place. You have no idea what you're exactly going to be following along at any given point in that first hour. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that you're wrong. I guess I think, uh, you're saying you're tainted by the expectations of, what we see in later Star Wars movies of those big introductions and the 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 more momentous uh, tone of each scene. And I'm sort of tainted by it too, but maybe in the opposite way in that I've gotten a little tired of that. And I liked um, the more uh, scaled back tone of this movie. But, you know, I agree. It is, it is scattered. I think part of that is also maybe intentional in the idea that Lucas is pretending that this is the fourth episode of some long-running serial, and I, I saw some quote somewhere um, that maybe he had he had said to someone, or that that they uh, reported that he said is that he wanted the audience to feel like they had missed something. That they're that's coming cool. in the middle. I, I don't mind that. I think that's that's a good. I kind of like that in movies, personally. You know, in my mind, I'm just thinking now, like, what if you turned in this script? today and no one had known about it and like you know um and like what the notes would be like who's the main character baby what are you doing here you know like where's the focus you know so it is different than um like you're saying what we consider a, a prototypical script yeah yeah and i mean lucas went through many many drafts of this script and refined it a lot it's not like this was the first draft and he didn't get right. any notes or whatever years and years of of writing. Yeah. And there was, I think, a deleted scene that introduced Luke earlier on in the movie, uh, had him hanging out with his friends um, that they cut because they thought that it, that that actually kind of diluted the focus. And I like that. Again, I like that the movie starts with the droids and you're like, are these the main characters? Are these robots the main characters of the movie? Um, but I mean, I think some of that stuff that maybe you feel like you're missing was deliberately left out, and whether that's good or not, you know, we can we can debate. But um, I do agree with you that it picks up in that second hour, and it becomes more of what we think of now as quote a Star Wars movie, where they're fighting and there's big battles and there's you know a lot at stake. The Death Star is going to destroy planets, and they have to stop it. And Darth Vader is there, and he's being really evil. And uh, there's a character, a major character death that you don't know at the time is is not really entirely a death, but um, it seems important. So all of that stuff definitely picks up, and I think it's maybe more fun to watch in that second hour, but I actually had fun with it this time. I had more fun with it this time than I expected to. I appreciated certain aspects of it that uh, maybe I had kind of dismissed, and it's not my favorite movie. It's not even my favorite Star Wars movie. I'm not a super fan or somehow have been converted to a super fan, but I did like it a little more this time than the last time I watched it. Well, I don't even know who you are anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, what was your, what was your favorite aspect of this movie, Jason? I mean that the, the interplay with, with Luke and Han is always great. Right. And then, you know, Leia adds to it and Obi-Wan Kenobi was like such a cool character when we were, you know, growing up, I think, that that's you know interesting although i would say like that sacrificial scene where he sacrifices himself that that became underwhelming in this watching too because it wasn't like a great battle and then like something he just like looked over and they're like oh he needs to get on the ship i'll just put my sword and my lightsaber down you you can just 
kill me kind of right so the technical stuff is my favorite part of this josh like i really like the 1970s you know models and scales and you know the way that it looks it's really more fun than all the cgi nonsense we see all the time now yeah well i agree and all the cgi nonsense that we unfortunately now see in this movie yeah and uh i don't know i assume you probably watched it on disney plus um i watched it on uh, a blu-ray and regardless of really where you see it um these days you can't see the original. It's very hard to find. There's the quote despecialized edition that fans have made that I think you can probably find online, although Disney is always trying to get those taken down. And it really struck me this time how like out of place those additional CGI elements are. And they look worse yeah, than the 1970s stuff does. Yeah, the job of the hut, right? Like the, oh, the yeah. loading dock, like that's frustrating. I agree with you, man. Why why? Why are we doing that, dude? Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, we know why, because George Lucas is decided that that was the better version of the movie, but the stuff from the 70s is so good. I mean, this movie was incredibly innovative from a special effects standpoint, and I think that stuff really holds up well. Like, no, does it look exactly like the CGI that we see in movies now, and does it look as convincing in some ways? Like, no, but it, it's convincing in the way that it immerses you in the world of the movie. It doesn't look real in that you could see it outside your window now, but it looks real in the context of the movie. Everything fits together, I think, very well. Um, and, so, yeah. And can I add to that? Like, yes, the the characters are more real that way. You know, the Anthony Daniels as C-3PO and Kenny Baker as R2-D2 and, of course, Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca. You know, like, um, they don't have the same appeal when they're CGI'd as we learned from a little guy called Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> yeah, well, the CGI was not the only problem with Jar Jar Binks. No, there but, were many problems with it. Yeah, but I, I agree. The whole package works together when it's all the way that it was created at the time, um, including the performances, the costumes, the sets, all of it, the special effects. Um, you want to talk about the actors? Um, I thought, watching this movie again, uh, it's really easy to see how Harrison Ford became a massive movie star after this movie because he's so charismatic here as Han Solo. Yeah, this is one of my favorite and uh, Harrison Ford performances, I'd say. And I like the sarcasm here, which sometimes we don't get from him in the later years, you know? <laughs> so, And um, yeah, I mean... Carrie Fisher's awesome. I love Carrie yeah. Fisher and she's so smart and funny and everything. So, uh, and, uh, you know, Hey man, your boy Hamill, that's, uh, <laughs> look, he's the guy he's the, he's, it's a different Luke Skywalker now though. That's what's so interesting. You know, he's, uh, if you're caught up on all the, um, the star Wars, he's, he's very intense and introverted now. And, uh, he's, he's emotionally scarred, Josh. Yeah, yeah, that's how he's portrayed in those later movies. But here, he really is that kind of wide-eyed, overly enthusiastic teenager in that he comes off as a little a little whiny, maybe, especially in the first half of the movie. But I think the sarcasm that you're talking about in Harrison Ford's performance as, as Han Solo is a good counterpoint to that. And their dynamic, as you mentioned, is really fun. And in a way, it kind of represents two perspectives on this kind of material where Luke is that wide-eyed, fanboy who's like, wow, spaceships, lasers, yeah. how amazing. And and Harrison Ford, Han Solo, is is the person is the Pauline Kale perspective who's like, yeah, whatever. Lasers, spaceships, yeah. who cares? Who do I have to kill to get my money? 
<laughs> right, exactly. So even even at this point, there's a little bit of maybe self-awareness on George Lucas's part, understanding that this material is a little silly or that people could perceive it as a little silly. And we want a character who represents that perspective. Well, Josh, beep, 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 beep. It's time for the alternate casting. We got to stop the beeping. The beeping is no good. I can come up with a theme if you want, guys. No, let's just go. Let's just move forward. What? What? So, you know, you know, the you know, the whole audition story of this whole thing where Lucas and Brian De Palma, who are buddies, he's De Palma's casting Carrie. And Lucas is casting Star Wars, and they're like, "Yeah, we'll just see everyone together, and uh, we'll just pick people for our movies, right?" So, you know, and um, Lucas really wanted unknown. So Ford, who was in American Graffiti, kind of won this role by reading with all these other people. But names, uh, male names: Kurt Russell, Nick Nolte, Sylvester Stallone, Bill Murray, Christopher Walken, Burt Reynolds, not an unknown, Jack Nicholson. Al Pacino, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Perry King. And he'd jump out. I know Walken was always like uh top are these of the for, are these for Luke or for I Han think Solo? I think everyone read everything from what I okay. could gather, yeah. but I know uh Walken was always considered for Han Solo, which I'm all in on, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean Kurt Russell to me is the one who could clearly have played Han Solo because he clearly played characters like that in other movies, and I think he would have been good at it. I think Bill Murray could have done it too. It might have been a little early in his career, but you know. I mean, is is Han Solo and Peter Venkman that that different of a character? Yeah, I I think it would have changed the tone because like, yeah, Han is sarcastic, but he has to have a level of earnestness to him as he especially as he returns and saves the day that ultimately he's won over by the cheesiness of the force and the the rebel cause. And I don't know if Bill Murray could have sold that. Chevy Chase, he was he was kind of that smarmy, fun, you know, uh, comedy Fletch type in the 80s, you know? Right. Yeah. Again, I think too much. You, you don't want to cast a, a comedic actor. You want no. to cast an actor who can do the sarcasm, who can sell a joke, but is ultimately more dramatically accomplished. And I don't think that would have worked. I mean, can you admit we missed a big opportunity not having Al Pacino and Christopher Walken as uh, as <laughs> Luke and Han here? I just think of those those Saturday Night Live sketches where they're just like I Dude, mean I'm yeah. pretty sure there's one maybe not for for this for for Star Wars the original but for one of the later sequels or whatever where they have the casting session and it's just a series of impressions by various yeah. SNL cast members and you know I'm sure Pacino. And Walken ended up in there. Yeah, I remember them. So, and then the uh, Leia names, they said like everyone auditioned for her, but Amy Irving, Terry Nunn from uh, Berlin, Berlin, right? Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Take, That's something. Did that, did that take your breath away? Oh. So, Cindy Williams, Karen Allen, and uh, they said Jodie Foster turned it down. Oh, wow. Yeah, I could have seen Jodie Foster doing it. I mean, yeah. one thing that's also great about Leia, even though she's the princess that they have to save and she's kind of played off as a potential romantic object uh, of affection for both Luke and Han. Like she's quite capable on her own in a way that you wouldn't expect a female character in a 1977 sci-fi adventure movie to be. She grabs the guns and fights alongside them. And she's the one who comes up with plans when they don't know what they're doing. And so I think that's something that Jodie Foster could have done quite well, but Carrie Fisher is great. I mean, um, you watch this movie and you also feel like or at least I kind of feel like the disappointment that Carrie Fisher had such a a tough 
uneven career after this. I mean, because of so many personal problems that she had, she didn't go on to become a major movie star the way that Harrison Ford did and appear in tons of other movies. I mean, she acted, but it was very sporadic. I agree with you. You, you, you wanted that for her seeing this. And like you said, one thing I liked about that character is, you know, there is that, um, laser gun battle in the hallway <laughs> yes and like uh the good guys don't know how to get out so leia uh blasts like a hole through like a, I guess uh you know just like a wall and then they all jump through and end up in like a trash compactor area but i thought it was cool that it wasn't just like hey i've thought out this plan um because you guys are dumb and i'm a woman and i've thought it all out like she's just as spontaneous and willing to take as many chances as they are which i think is great for the character yeah i agree i i I was struck by that as well this time that leia is such a great character and i mean they're all great characters but i think she is just as active in the story and in the action as the other two of them are. And that's, uh, and that's a great thing. I loved the droids. I, you know, Anthony Daniels, the only actor who was in all the star Wars movies, I believe is, is so good as C-3PO and the, the like comedy interplay between them, you know, inspired in part by like Hope and Crosby, as well as by a Kurosawa movie called the hidden fortress is timeless. I mean, it's like the R2D2 C-3PO comedy hour is, is fantastic. Yeah. Everyone loves that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. All right. right. Whatever. You don't care. All right. Um, yeah. And well, one other thing I w- I wanted to mention about this that I liked that is sort of again in contrast to what happened later is I feel like there's so many references in this movie to things in the wider universe of Star Wars, many of which we would later learn way too much about. Um, but you watch this movie and they toss off these things and you, they don't explain them, like the Clone Wars and things like that. And it, it gives you this really enticing sense, again, going back to what Lucas was talking about with the audience feeling like they missed something. But it's not a feeling of like confusion. It's like, wow, there's so much here that we don't know about. And they can toss that off without having to explain it. And it just is really enticing. And of course, what happened later is that explaining a lot of those things ruined them. Yeah. But um, but <laughs> watching it this time, when you don't know that, I feel like Lucas does a great job of giving the sense of this universe being so much bigger than just the story that we're watching. I, I like that too. And you know, he had the other two scripts basically done for Empire and Jedi so and was planning on making them somehow, even though he didn't think this was going to lead to what it led to. Right. So. So, yeah. So he could drop those references, knowing that, you know, at least those two were written and we would have some payoff to them. I agree with you, John Williams. Yeah, I just want to give that shout out. Oh, We've yeah, talked the, about the music is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the last thing to mention is uh, the cantina sequence. Of course. Great. With, iconic stuff. Yeah. And um, I'm glad that uh, bad guy aliens like ragtime music. Jizz <laughs> is, the, is the, the, the actual term, the unfortunate term for the music. He, that like. Yeah, that's not good. That's not. I was going to no. go with ragtime or klezmer somewhere in there, but like. That is, I think, what yeah. either George Lucas or some official Lucasfilm source calls it. Is that all right? It's called. So that's bad. But um, but the music I like imagining itself, that Josh is wrong about that. I, I, I you so know what? Funny. I didn't, I didn't look this up again. Yeah. But in part because it's a horrible detail that has stuck in my mind. So Dave, I think Dave, Google search jizz and see what comes yeah, up. Yeah, just, just type that word and no other words yeah. and see what tell, see what comes up. Tell us what you learned, Dave. 
Yeah. Um, but no, the, the cantina scene is great. And I think that's another scene that gives you this sense of like, look at all these weird alien species that we don't ever follow up on, but they're all here in this cantina. And that's where they come together to drink and to fight and to make deals and all that kind of stuff. And it gives you this sense of the wider world of Star Wars and also of the, of the galaxy of the, the empire, whatever. And, and also it gives you that sense. One thing that Lucas really wanted to do was to not make this look like this kind of antiseptic future world, which is really what he does in THX 1138, his first movie. Um, but this all from the cantina to the ships, to the bases, to everything looks like a place that people have been living for years and parts are kind of run down and things need to be fixed and stuff is dirty. And the cantina is a great example of that. Yeah, it's cool that the future is going to suck so bad. It's not, but it's, of course, it's not the future. And that's part it's of the That's right. Too. It's just a galaxy. It's that far, it's far that's away. far, far away uh, yeah. a long time ago. And it's just normal life in this, this time period in this, in this galaxy. So, well, um, it's cool that this time period sucked as well. Yeah. Everything sucks. That's yeah. the, that's the message of this very hopeful, optimistic, fun movie. Yeah. That's what you got out of it. That everything sucks. So should we rate it, Josh? Yeah, let's do it. We can talk about Star Wars forever, but let's wrap up and rate it out of uh, lightsabers, I guess. That seems yeah, the obvious one. Yeah, that's better because I know Dave wanted it out of the five jizz songs, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's appropriate. I think I'll go with three lightsabers, Josh. Three. That's fair. Yeah, I think I rated it that last time, but I'm going to bump it up to three and a half this time. I, I I had fun. I enjoyed it all the way through. So what um, world are we living in? I don't even know what's happening on this show anymore. I mean, I'm pretty sure that saying Star Wars is entertaining is not a controversial opinion, but um, yeah, no, but from you, it is, I think, because everyone's probably <laughs> expecting you to like, just want to burn it with an American flag wrapped around it or something. <laughs> like that. Oh my God, so, that's so harsh. <laughs> Dave, Dave, did you, did you watch this recently? Do you want to give it a rating? Sure. Yeah, I, I watched it and uh, I'll give it a three. All right. So I'm the most enthused here somehow. No. Well, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Star Wars. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this premiere of our season on the films of 1977. We've been talking about the phenomenon that is Star Wars. And as much time as we can spend talking about the movie itself, I feel like the legacy of Star Wars really is far bigger than any of the aspects of the movie. It's, it's hard to know where to start even in talking about what this movie has meant to cinema, to pop culture, and to the careers of the people involved. I mean, it's just this, it looms bigger than almost any other movie ever made. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I know in the past we've kind of talked about like the Lion King and six billion dollars of merchandising, but nothing touches Star Wars, man, as far as uh, creating that the the universe, obviously. Right. So um, Lucas was able to basically finagle a deal to get the merchandising rights back and all these things. And you got to give him credit because like he was the one who built this merchandising empire and uh, no pun intended. And, um, you know, that wasn't like the, the way movies were. Like we talked about in Batman, how like they become, you know, more involved with product placement and this and that. Look, we could go on all day just about that, you know? So 
uh, 700 other movies and TV shows and video games. And of course, the very difficult to find 1979 Christmas special. Is it that one? or <laughs> Yeah, the Star Wars holiday special, I think yeah. is what it's called. Because it's not Christmas, it's Life Day, which is the holiday on Chewbacca's home planet. And it's not that difficult to find anymore thanks to the internet. I think it's actually, even though it's not been officially released, I think it's actually pretty easy to find. But I have not ever watched it. I watched a little of it. It's not very good. It's 1978. So. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's partially notable because... That's before then uh, Empire Strikes Back even came out. So the the first follow-up to Star Wars was that holly, uh, that holiday special. So um, I think that's that's what has horrified people, maybe, <laughs> because they were so excited about Star Wars. And hey, here's the next Star Wars thing. And it's this awful piece of crappy, half-assed TV special with like Phyllis. Isn't Phyllis Diller on it, I think? <laughs> she should be, if not. I don't know. I'll... I'll all former cast members of the match game should be, though, Josh. Yes. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'll, you can talk about whatever uh, part of the legacy you want. I'll just say, like, uh, Empire, I'm one of those guys. The darkest movie is my favorite one. Empire Strikes Back, I think, is the best one. Of the new ones, I really like Rogue One, which is, that's the one that has nothing to do with any of the other stories, right? Well, it doesn't have mm -hmm. nothing to do. I mean, in fact, as you as you watch this movie... There's a point in the beginning where they mention, you know, we've obtained the plans for the Death Star. And right. that is what that is what Rogue One is about. I mean, it doesn't feature the characters. It features Leia for like two seconds at the very, very end. But otherwise, it doesn't feature the characters. It's not part of the, quote, Skywalker saga. So uh, I like Rogue One also. And I think I agree that that Empire, which, again, is a non-controversial opinion, that that Empire is the best movie in the in the overall series. I, I quite like The Force Awakens, even though it's in a lot of ways a remake of this movie, of A New Hope, but it uh, I think is really entertaining and knows exactly what it should be delivering to the yes. audience, which, which I think is something that the next two, for different reasons, the next two sequel movies didn't quite capture. And so I think The Force Awakens uh, is the best of those. And and I'll say, I'll, I'll put in a slight defense for Solo the Han Solo origin movie, which is is not very well regarded, but I think is a lot of fun. So I haven't, that's like the only one I haven't seen. I, I will watch that though, but I agree with you on um on The Force Awakens. I That was the, I don't want to call it a reboot, but really it jump-started the kind of fun and spirit of the whole franchise again. And it needed that because we do have to mention uh, episodes one through three, the George Lucas uh, mid-2000s uh, disasters, disaster prequels josh horrible yeah. horrible affronts to the art of cinema wow <laughs> yeah those are not good although i haven't seen any of them uh since i think when the last one came out when revenge of the sith came out in 2005 i i rewatched the previous two but i haven't watched them since then and, and i'm sure they're not good but they definitely have their defenders and because the uh, the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace was last year, there were, were a few reassessments of its quality from cer certain uh, quarters. But those movies are George Lucas's pure visions for exactly what he wanted to do. They're written and directed by him, whereas even the next movies in the initial trilogy, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, were not directed by George Lucas uh, and, and had co-writers on them. And... So those prequels are the like purest form in a way of George Lucas's vision where it's all him and he had all the resources at his disposal that he didn't necessarily have 
for A New Hope. And so it does make you kind of question some of his uh, thought process there. Yeah, I mean, like you said, like I'm not, uh, uh, I mean, dude, Empire to me is the best of the collaborative, like, efforts anyway so you know yeah those are those are horrible but on the bright side i really love the mandalorian i know now we know john favreau who we talked about in the swingers episode has kind of taken over this universe uh from a television level and is kind of building it out the same way he built out the marvel universe and the mandalorian was a really fun show i'm excited to see the next season of it yeah i like the mandalorian too i think it was it was quite entertaining and and to me it gets back to some of that stuff that you were complaining about in this movie where it's very small scale. A lot of it, it's, it's, it's scaled back stories that are not all about saving the universe in massive space. And Josh, but that's, that's an unfair, uh, uh, shot, right, right in the gut, Josh, (laughs) because what you're talking about is a 40 minute contained television show each week. That's telling a progressive story as opposed to one big two hour popcorn flick on the big screen. So you have to take the medium into account, Josh. And yeah. uh, I'm going to I'm going to let you slide on this one, but only this one, Josh. Yeah. OK. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think you're not wrong there in that if The Mandalorian was a, a theatrical movie that was one two and a half hour story that it might have disappointed people because it didn't involve that that same sort of scale. I think in part that's what some people didn't like about Solo, which was a big two and a half hour uh, movie on the big screen, but ultimately also has a kind of smaller scale story. It's not about saving the universe. It's just about Han Solo and some of his uh, teammates, you know, uh, stealing something. And yeah. and I liked that about it, but I think some people maybe were disappointed with that perspective. But uh, but I do enjoy that. Well, movie. we know and the Mandalorian. Yeah, we know Solo had its issues. It was originally Lord and Miller and they got they left, quote unquote, you know, and uh, and then Ron Howard took it over and Ron Howard always gets blasted as like, this is the least successful Star Wars. Meanwhile, it's the most successful film opening of his career. And he's had tons of hits. Right. So tells you the scale of the Star Wars universe. Right. Yeah. That that movie is the disappointment, considering how much money it made. And uh, and Ron Howard, I think, is the right choice. Ron Howard, someone who is part of that same generation as Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. And the star of American Graffiti. Exactly. I think he's the right choice. And I know with the prequels, I think uh, Lucas had offered some of his uh, contemporaries, including Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis, and I think Ron Howard as well, the chance to direct those. And they all deferred to him and then and that was the wrong choice on their yeah. parts i think they should have accepted yeah yeah that was not the yeah best, so. and but so, so can i can i want to just bring up one thing like yes. are we a little disappointed that lucas hasn't done anything else since star Wars? i mean you know we know he's involved with the indiana jones franchise and a few other things as either a writer or producer but like it's star wars or bust for this dude like i would love to have seen something else from him Yeah, I agree. And actually, that was the next thing I was going to bring up is that he became, in a weird way, this sort of like reclusive figure. He's like the Terrence Malick of sci-fi. And actually, he's not because Terrence Malick eventually became incredibly prolific after like 20 (laughs) years of nothing. But Lucas, you know, he didn't direct a movie between Star Wars in 1977 and The Phantom Menace in 1999. And he really just focused on building that Star Wars empire. And again, no pun intended. And, and then selling it and then selling the whole thing to Disney. And I think when he sold Star Wars to Disney in, uh, was it 2012, I think? There were some rumblings that, oh, now he's got the chance to go back 
to his roots and make this uh, a movie that he would want to make. I mean, the guy has billions of dollars. He can finance anything that he wants on his own without any interference from anyone. And he just does nothing. Yeah. Well, look, I'm not, I'm not going to say he does nothing because obviously like uh, industrial lights and magic and all the special effects, like you had mentioned at the beginning, like, dude, like it's everywhere. Like, I mean, he is, he deserves a statue as like one of the most important uh, technological innovators in the history of cinema, especially from a special effects standpoint. And uh, there is a story that like Chris Hardwick told on like the Nerdist once that he went up to like Skywalker Ranch and like Lucas has movies that are done. Like, and he's like, oh, I made this for $5 million. And he's like, well, why don't you put it out? And he's like, meh, I just wanted to see if I could do it. So I don't know if that's true, but that is a rumor that he's made features that he just doesn't do anything with. But um yeah, I mean, look, man, let's do let's do something, baby. It's time to make a move, fella. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and that would be if that is true or if he has scripts or whatever in, in whatever stage of being finished that maybe it'll take in, you know, until his death or something when his family, he's like the J.D. Salinger of films in a way because he's he's hoarding all this stuff and 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 living off of his reputation. And I mean, he's certainly earned the right to do whatever he wants, even if that is not to do anything, but it does seem like a sort of missed opportunity. As you mentioned, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, I mean, he founded a whole new company in order to make the special effects in this movie, yeah. and and you can't understate that influence. Um, ben Burt, who I mentioned before, uh, the creation of the sound effects in this movie, I mean, he's a huge pioneer there. And I've seen him uh, live at the uh, Turner Classic Movies Festival. He and, and now I can't remember who else it is, but another collaborator of his um, they do these special effects demonstrations in, in, they'll, they'll pick a movie each year at the festival that has some sort of importance to the development of special effects. And they'll do all these like practical demonstrations before the movie, like actually bringing props in and, and showing how certain sound effects were created. And it's fascinating to watch. I saw them introduce, uh, the 1950s version of the war of the worlds and also a, a Tarzan movie from the 1930s. And it's always amazing to see them. Uh, talk about the way that they created this stuff and the the sort of like improvisation uh, that was that went into creating these effects. So uh, Ben Burt deserved uh, all of his accolades. I just wanted to say that sounds awesome, man. I would love to see oh. that. Yeah, that yeah, it great. is awesome. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's one of the great highlights of that festival and one of the, the amazing things that they do there. Harrison Ford, huge star, of course, Indiana Jones uh, and everything else that he's done. And Mark Hamill, even though he didn't become this major star on the level of Harrison Ford, has clearly had a great career and the kind of career that he's wanted to have. He's done all of this voiceover work. And I think more than anyone else, where Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher always seem to have this kind of ambivalent relationship to Star Wars, even though they eventually came back to appear in those sequels, Mark Hamill was the one who embraced it and was happy to be part of that geek culture and was happy to be at conventions and meeting fans and involved in more uh, kind of geeky things with comic books and uh, cartoons. I mean, he's had a great voiceover career as the voice of the Joker in various Batman projects for decades. Um, and I think now, especially with the prequels, he's getting that, or the sequels, he's getting that appreciation as a performer and getting those better roles that maybe he never got in the, the decades immediately following Star Wars. I think so. I'd like to see him do more stuff now. I think, like you said, like he has played the Joker. It'd be cool to see him play a villain on anything from like a cop show or a low budget, you know, thriller type thing. Uh, of course, 
We do know he has played a villain in uh, Kevin Smith's Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, right? Was that the first one, or uh, who knows which? Was yeah, the first one? no, that it was a uh, yeah. Uh, whatever it is, it's we we don't need to talk about it. Um, but I, but I, but I, I will say that his his appearance in a Kevin Smith movie is part of that sort of right. like Fandom immersion, and, and yeah. embracing it. Yeah, so exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I do remember him as a villain. He played a villain on the the nineteen nineties uh, the Flash TV series with John Wesley Shipp. He played, I think it's the trickster, and I think he actually got to return as that character in the the more recent. Uh, incarnation of the Flash. So yeah, in, a lot of yeah. And Jay and Silent Bob doesn't he play Cock Punch? Is that his name, Dave? So. Cock Knocker. Cock Knocker. Wow. You know what? Wow. You know what you should play in the background of Cock Knocker scenes? Jizz music, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness we got Kevin Smith involved in this. Josh was right about not bringing it up. Kevin Smith, <laughs> 19, alumnus from our first season, Josh. Nineteen. Yeah, and of course, uh, Star Wars is a big topic in Kevin Smith's Yes, books. and a very funny piece of dialogue about the um, Death Star, you know, destruction as they're rebuilding it in Clerks from Randall and how uh, messed up it is that that the uh, the good guys, the rebels did that. Right, right. I, as, as we kind of mentioned before, this was a big launching point for the idea of the blockbuster and some people might blame this movie for the dumbing down of mainstream cinema, but I don't think you can put all of that on on Star Wars or on George Lucas, but it certainly was a major factor towards that. And as we get into the 80s, we see more and more of these kinds of movies um, being released by major studios more frequently. How do you feel about Spaceballs, the Mel Brooks spoof of it? I like Spaceballs. Um, I, Spaceballs, it's, it's, possible well no i was going to say it's possible i saw spaceballs before i saw star wars i'm not sure about that but i will say that most likely when i was a kid i was a bigger fan of spaceballs than i was a fan of star wars me too i could see me that too. hey mel brooks we might be talking about him later this season hint hint oh yeah but spaceballs is a lot of fun um i mean it's is totally stupid but is also kind of stupid fun and it's a movie that people were always clamoring for for sequels to. And there was a Spaceballs animated series that kind of went way under the radar a few years ago that I've never watched, but I think is available somewhere. So. Yeah, I don't know it. A lot of Star Wars animated series as well, yeah. uh, of course. Uh, you mentioned John Favreau. We should maybe also mention Dave Filoni, who's a huge architect of the Star Wars universe these days with all those animated series and also worked on uh, The Mandalorian and... Uh, I don't know what else to say. I mean, we could, again, go on forever about Star Wars, but uh, do you have any other points that you'd like to make, Jason, that you feel are important? Nah, I'm good. All right. Dave, uh, how do you feel about the legacy of Star Wars? Anything that stands out to you? I mean, only last thing to mention is just to bring up that John Williams score again. I mean, it's just so freaking influential over so many other scores over the years. Yeah, it definitely... Set like just like the special effects and the sound and so many things, it it set the tone for the way that people approached that kind of thing going forward. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's just great. It's just great pieces of music. You can listen to that score without watching the movie and and love it. Yeah. Um, so that is Star Wars. Then the first and last word on Star Wars. <laughs> Finally, and someone somewhere in covered this film in some type of way you're welcome i know it's really it's really been under discussed um 
So that's Star Wars. That's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. And you can follow us on social media. You can. Uh, we are at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm at uh, gopherjason.com. Uh, I don't even care. Who cares? It's a dumb website. <laughs> I'm at uh, Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Don't forget to check out SpaceJam.com. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I am at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, which is approaching GoForJason.com levels of misuse, but it's still there. <laughs> at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find Piecing It Together wherever you find this great podcast. And also you can follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where there's probably been a lot of posts about Star Wars lately, I'm sure. Really? People want to discuss Star Wars? That's weird. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Jason, what do we have coming up on our next episode? Josh, it is our first feature episode from a director that went on to much acclaim and... Uh, there are many opinions about him. It is David Lynch's Eraserhead, and that is a wild ride, friends. Uh, quick note, we actually recorded that one. We watched it uh, early on when we were planning 1977. So we did record it in studio. It might sound a little different now that we're all in remote areas. Um, and maybe there's a few things that are dated, but we feel like it's a good episode and obviously a worthwhile film to cover. So check out Eraserhead next week, David Lynch. Yes. Even if it uh, sounds different, our insights are always fresh. So <laughs> listen next time for Eraserhead. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Dave, did you look up Jizz? Yeah, you're right. All right. <laughs> Sadly. They're Jizz, jizz Whalers are the name of the musicians. Oh, that's even worse. Jizz Whalers? <laughs> yeah.